You know, the lights had barely come on at the dawn of time for humanity when humanity chose to go in a different path. Humanity chose to succumb to the pressure to conform. It's a pressure that was not, it was not toward the greatness that God created us for. Pressure instead away from that greatness. You see, the reality is God created humanity for truly great things. God created us for amazing things. And then, to make it even better than that, He created the whole of the universe for us. Everything that we would ever want, everything that we would ever need is within our grasp. And what is not right there within our grasp, He created us with the ability to reach for it. God created us for some pretty amazing things. And even to add to that, as if that isn't enough, God created us in His image. You see, everything that God is, His love, His knowledge, His power, His wisdom, His creativity, everything that is God is infinite, without limits. He created us in His image. Which means we have the capacity to grow in those things. God created us for some truly amazing things. We were created for real adventure, real life, real intimacy with Him. But there was another who was there at the beginning. Another bent on revenge. Satan was created as the most beautiful of the angels. You could even say that he was the captain of the guard. In terms of uh, the created order, he may have almost been the top. That wasn't enough for him. That wasn't enough for him. He wanted more than what he had. He wanted an even higher status than what he had. So Scripture gives us this picture that he rallied a third of the angels to his side in this rebellion against God, only to be overthrown and the rebellion fail. He learned at that moment that he could not overtake God. That God was more powerful than that. So Satan set out on a new quest. If he couldn't take God's position, he would get revenge on God the best way he knew how. See, he understood something about us human beings. He set out on a plan to get back at God by getting back at, at us. See, God had created human beings. And He gave everything to us. You could almost say that humanity, human beings, that, that you and I, that we were the crown of God's creation. The apple of His eye. The center of His attention. God had given so much to humanity because of His infinite love for us. So Satan's plan, his way of getting back at God, he set out to plant an idea in the mind of humanity. Plant an idea that would destroy the intimate relationship between humans and God. 
He placed an idea in their mind. God was holding out on them. God was keeping the best stuff for Himself. That's why they weren't to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God really didn't love them as much as what they thought. And even more, God couldn't be trusted. He planted an idea that they needed to take matters into their own hands to get the better life that God was withholding from them. So Satan applied pressure on humanity to move away from God. So Eve, with Adam right there by her side, embarked on a destructive path. Not the epic adventure that God created humanity for, but instead a destructive path. Their choice to distrust the one who loved them more than they could begin to comprehend. Well, well, it left their life only in destruction. It spun our world into a spiral downward, further and further from God's original intent. And our lives now are forever stained by our choices, and we in and of ourselves are unable to wipe that stain away, to undo the full damage of what we've done in our rebellion against God. In our buying of the lie. And you know what? It's interesting to, to recognize this reality. You know, we read the news of this past week with the three different shootings around the nation and all the people who were killed or injured by those different gunmen. And we look at that and we know, instinctively we know, as does the rest of the world, something is broken. It's not supposed to be this way, is it? We all know this reality. From the health issues that can take a life to people's choices that can take a life. And everywhere else in between, we know that the world is broken. And now, and now it seems as if the world that got created and called good, even that seems bent on moving us, pressuring us, coercing us away from that loving relationship with God that God created for us to enjoy. In Christ, Christians are pointed toward what God originally designed. We, we're shown God's greater plan, His, His better way of living. We are given a chance as Christ followers to glimpse back to a time before the fall, before the world became broken. We're given a chance to see God's original intent. And in that, we learn that that something better that we all long for, it's found only in Jesus and nowhere else. We learn through the Bible God's plan to bring us back to that relationship that was there before we chose to go in that other direction, before the fall. And yet, and yet, even as Christ followers, we often find ourselves still asking those same questions. Is God holding out on me? 
Is that why he says I can't have fill in the blank? Can I really trust God? I mean, I look at some of the circumstances that have come into my life or come into people's lives even, even just this past week here in America, and we ask the question, is God really good? Can I trust Him? Or should I just take matters into my own hands and chart my own course? That lie that was planted in our minds still echoes there. And then to add one more problem into the mix. Humanity itself seems to have bought the lie. All of humanity questions God's goodness and love. All of humanity seems to begin life bent on rebellion against God. Then, Humanity doesn't settle for that as if my rebellion against God is enough. No, no, no. We want company. We try to enlist as many people as we can in our rebellion through coercion, through persuasion, through various methods. A universal culture seems to have arisen in our world. A culture that is still following that first rebellion. A culture that now demands conformity to its ways, to its ideologies, ways that go contrary to God's design. If somebody appears to be wayward from that norm, well, they're labeled as a rebel. They're labeled as something that is deviant from the norm, and there's pressure applied to them to move back to that cultural norm that we see throughout societies around the world. Nonconformity is unacceptable in our world. This harmony isn't tolerated. The rebel to the cultural norm is made to feel that they are wrong. That they are the troublemakers. Various methods are applied by our, our world culture to try to get the, the deviant person back in line with the rest of the rebels. Go back to where it is that we had originally come from. Back to being in line with society's norms. Intimidation tactics are deployed to scare those rebels back in line. Persuasion is used to get them to want to give up and go back to that other way. Coercion is employed to convince them of the error of their ways. Time and again, humanity bombards those who seek to return to what God originally designed with all sorts of stimulus to get us to go back to where they want us at, not to where God wants us. And for many who have turned to Christ the sad reality is, shortly after their eyes are opened to this new world, they quickly turn back and head off down that other path. The path that society has pressured them to pursue. Shortly after leaving the path of humanity's norm, they leave it again to return. They buy the lie that they 
began disbelieving when they turned to Christ. The lie that says God is holding out on them. The lie that says God can't be trusted. The lie that says they need to take control of their life and give everything back to how they want things to be done because God isn't getting it done right. The lie that says God doesn't care about us. They're told that right and wrong are constructs of society. They're told that God doesn't exist. That if He does, what gives Him the right to say what we would do or not do? They're told, instead, instead of following those restrictive rules of Christianity, do what feels good, what feels right. Do whatever it is you want to do. As long as it's going to make you feel good, then it's okay. Whatever's going to make you the happiest from your current perspective. So one by one, many who at one point turned toward Christ turn back away. You know, it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't. God created us for the adventure of a lifetime. Our life actually is supposed to be an adventure of epic proportions. What God has created us for is beyond comprehension. Living the life that God created us to live creates the greatest meaning and purpose for our life. And it is when we don't live that life that we struggle to find purpose and meaning. When we choose to ignore the lie, on the other hand, and believe the truth of God, well, life makes sense. It comes into focus for us. But unfortunately, many believers have fallen asleep to this greater picture. This greater reality of what God has created us for. Those who are awake in their faith, who live, they're the ones who live uncompromising lives for Christ. They're the ones who live unyielding lives for Christ. They are not the deviants but they're the ones who are where they should be. Instead, those who have chosen to follow the direction of God unyieldingly, they are living life how it is supposed to be lived. The rebe their rebellion is not against what should be, but rather it is toward what should be. They are rebelling against what comes naturally to us to instead live fully for God. Those who are awake. Well, unfortunately, even within churches, they're viewed as strange, as freaks, as zealots, as maybe over-the-top Christians. Those who are awake, they're looked at as strange, even by those sometimes within the church. As if their faith is weird or wrong. But theirs is the awake faith. They are the ones who can see better because they live unyielding lives for Christ. But many who fill our churches around the world and even throughout the centuries who call themselves Christians, they live a life that is in slumber. They have been lulled into a slumber of a lie. 
They've been coerced into yielding to the pressure to conform to that adherent life. They've been intimidated into closing their eyes to the truth of what God has called us to. The pressure that is on their life has pushed them back to that other path. Many of them are still saved. You know, we talked about this last week. The reality, unfortunately, is is that they built their life on the foundation that is Christ using junk, hay, wood, and straw. And in the end, as Paul wrote that we looked at last week, they will still be saved, but only as one escaping the flames. Many are still saved. But they've lost out on something so much greater. Christians, we need to wake up once more. We need to wake up and see that we have drifted from God's design for us. We need to wake up and see that we've conformed to our world. We need to wake up and pursue an unyielding faith. So as I normally do, in order to understand what an unyielding faith looks like, we need to look at the opposite side because it gives us a clearer picture of what an unyielding faith is to look at then what a yielding or yielded faith looks like. So what does a yielded faith look like? Well, there's pressure on us to give way to that lesser way of living. Less than what God designed us for. And this pressure isn't anything new. It's not like it's brand new to the 21st century. It's not. It's been around since the beginning of mankind. It's always been there. Starting for humanity when Satan started that lie. You see, in the garden, Satan tempted Eve, and she believed his lie. And so, she was tempted and and believed that the fruit was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom. Genesis 3.6. In the wilderness, Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13, Satan tempted Jesus to turn some stones into bread to satisfy his physical hunger to jump off the highest point of the temple to gain the recognition of the people around them, to gain the people's attention. He was tempted to bow down to Satan to gain power in this life. John would later write in 1 John that all of humanity is tempted in those same three areas. So what are those three areas that pressure us to have a yielding faith? 1 John chapter 2, verses 2. 15 through 17. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away. But whoever does the will of the Father, of God, lives forever. It's important to note a few things as we we look at this passage here. First of all, when when John talks about the world, he's talking about the world that we live in here. There's a few different Greek words that are often translated as world in our English Bibles. The one that John used is one that points to the physical realm. You could even say our universe. As a matter of fact, that word is where we get our English word cosmos, having to do with the universe. So John was pointing to our physical world that we live in. 
the tangible things of our world. Second, John pointed out that the things of this world are at odds with God. While there are some things that are in our world that are parallel with God's character, not everything is. Generally speaking, many things of our world are not parallel with God's character. And John pointed out that if we, if we love this world, those things that are not parallel with God's character, then we cannot love God. We can't love both God and those things. God created us to wholeheartedly love Him and Him alone. Just like in marriage, fidelity is expected. Infidelity, well, that's not something that is wanted or expected in marriage. Same is true in our relationship with God. God expects that we would be faithful to Him, to Him alone. For an excellent picture of this, Hosea in the Old Testament paints that picture for us. If you're unfamiliar, Hosea was a prophet who uh, God had told him to marry a woman who would be unfaithful to him. And that every time she was unfaithful, he was to go chase her down and bring her back home again out of love. It was to be a picture for the nation of Israel to see how it was that they were like that wayward wife. And God was the loving husband who regularly and continually chased after her. See, they, they were to catch, as we are when we read it and we hear about it, that we are not to be unfaithful. But what's supposed to be is our faithfulness to God all the time. God expects Christians to be faithful, to be unyielding in their relationship to Him. We are to love nothing else as much as we love God. Yes, there are things that we can love in the world, but at best, the things that we love in life have to come at best a distant second to our love for God. Third, John isn't advocating that we remove ourselves from the world. Jesus didn't um, pray the night that he was arrested that Christians would be removed from the world. Rather, what he prayed for is that we would be protected. That Christians would be protected because he knew what was coming. He knew the temptation, the drive, the coercion to drift from God. So Jesus' prayer before his own execution was for our protection, not our removing from the world. John is challenging his readers, us as well, not to remove ourselves from the world, but more specifically, not to love it. John went on, though, in that passage I just read, to list those three areas that all of humanity finds themselves lured into, tempted into. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the desires of life. The word lust, it indicates a strong desire for something. There are many desires that we may have in life that aren't bad. I mean, for example, desiring for our world to be a better place. Desiring for those incidents, those shootings that just happened to never happen again. Okay, those are good desires, okay? So not all desires are evil. The issue is where it is that we place our, our desire. If our desire is into an, into an unhealthy area, then it can become evil. If our desires take precedence in our life, it can lead us in the wrong direction. See, it's how one acts on 
and where the focal point is of our desire that matters. So John starts with the lust of the flesh. Flesh indicates a physical body. These are the natural desires that one has based on our, our physical existence, our physical being. Paul, when he wrote, he used that same Greek word to point to that which is our sinful nature. John didn't typically use that word the same way, but in this case, he did. He used it to point to those desires that we have inside of us that will lead us, if we allow ourselves to follow them, in a direction that takes us away from God. You see, when we live only for what our body desires, when our desires of our body take control of our life, we got problems at that point in our relationship with God. We've, we've developed a yielding or yielded faith. John went on to talk about the lust of the eyes. Well, there's a lot of different theories as to what John was talking about in there with that, that statement. I believe that the simpler understanding is probably the best approach. I believe that John was pointing to what it is that we can see with our eyes. It's about zeroing in on our physical world, forgetting the spiritual one. See, the reality is there's a spiritual world all around us. God Himself is spirit, and we are spiritual beings. And when we focus in just on the physical world that we can see, and we live for what it is that we can see, We've forgotten the fact that this life is temporary. It's just a short blip on the span of eternity. And human beings, we were created to live eternity forward from the moment of conception. And so when we focus in just on this physical realm, what we can see, again, we've lost sight of the greater life that God has for us. The third area where all human beings are tempted is the boastful pride of life, as some translations say. Or the pride of life. Greek word that's translated as life there, it's the Greek word bios. It's where we get our English word biology, the study of life. It has to do with, well, life. Living. But when John used this word, what he was talking about in here, it's talking about the person who focuses on what this life has to offer. We're talking about power and status and prestige, and position. Talking about that desire that most all human beings have to be liked or to be loved. It's not that being liked and being loved are wrong. Remember, the problem comes in and where we put our focus in there. All human beings are tempted at times to make ourselves maybe appear better. Some people on the uh, work stage, they, they make themselves appear better so that maybe they get a promotion. Or, or maybe on a relational stage so that they get more people to like them. I used to call that putting on a face, a mask. Being a different person for different people. To be liked more in different settings. Sometimes it's about taking credit for what isn't ours to take credit for. These three areas, the three things that we're all tempted in, we've all been tempted in them at one point or another. Sometimes more often than others. And even Christians can fall victim to these temptations. And when we do, we've just yielded our faith to a lesser way of life. We're tempted sometimes to chase after things that gratify our body. 
For some, they chase after things in a very unhealthy way. And they satisfy that craving through alcohol and drugs or the typical things that are thrown out there. But sex is another one. Sex outside of marriage, maybe it's pornography, but we chase after the things that gratify our physical being. We chase after all those cravings that we have to have one more thing, to get one more thing. And on and on that list goes. We find our fix in various ways through those unhealthy cravings that are met that our physical desires have. We're tempted to pursue the things that are tangible in this life. Gaining more, having more, getting just one more, seeing just one more. We chase after this or that. And we live, we live for what we can see and hear and touch instead of for God. This is our life sometimes. This is sometimes what we love more than we love God. But we're also tempted to long for recognition, to have our ego stroked. We all want to be liked and be loved, like I was just saying. And those aren't wrong things, but when an unhealthy desire takes over, it can be unhealthy. It can create problems in our relationship with other people, also in our relationship with God. Every human being is tempted in those three areas, even Christians. And when believers give in to the temptation, the pressure, the coercion to live by those desires, we're living, an un, un, or we're living a yielded faith. When believers buy the lie of our coercive culture, We've yielded our faith to the pressure around us. So if, that's an, if that is a yielded faith, what is an unyielding faith? An unyielding faith is this. A faith that refuses to succumb to the pressure to be less than God created us to be. See, Paul challenged the Christians in Rome to not succumb to the pressures of the world around them. Romans 12, 2, Paul said, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. To conform is to adjust to something outwardly due to pressure. It's the idea of becoming outwardly something that you are not inwardly. So let's zero in on Christians here, okay? As Christians, when you came to Christ, when you turned your life over to Him, you became a new creation, a new creature in Christ. God then changed you from the inside out. God Himself began living inside of you, the Holy Spirit. He began living inside of you to change you. Inside, you're not what you were. When Paul's talking about conforming, He's saying the pressure of the world is bearing down on you. Don't give in and become outwardly what you are not inwardly. You are a new creation in Christ. Paul challenges readers, don't go back to the old habits. Don't succumb to the pressure to return. Don't give in to the old ways that are not God-honoring. The word that Paul used, it's translated as world in our English Bibles, it's not the same word that John used. Where John's word pointed to the tangible things of this world, you know, like this table, each other, Paul used a different word. His word referred to thoughts, 
opinions, speculations, hopes, impulses, aims, and aspirations at any time current in the world. So Paul challenged, instead of yielding to this world's ideologies, he commanded them to be transformed. He was pointing to a transformation on the outside that was there because of what was happening on the inside. Change from the inside out. So as I said, what's inside the believer? When a person turns to Christ, as I said, God begins living in them. The Holy Spirit is there transforming us on the inside back to what we were originally created for. God even gives you a new desire to be that. Paul taught that we're able then to know what God's will is because of that transforming work that God is doing inside of us. But to combat the pressure that we all Christians face to go back to the old way of life, the one outside of Christ, we need what we need is a new perspective, a new way of viewing our world, a new way of approaching things. I like one thing Dallas Willard said. He said, it is the responsibility of every Christ-centered follower to carve out a satisfying life under the loving rule of God, or else sin will start to look good. Did you catch that? I love that. If you call yourself a Christian, it is your responsibility to make your life in Christ satisfying. There are steps you can take. I can take. Because if we do not recognize the satisfying nature of our relationship with Christ, well, you know what? Sin starts to look good once more. We begin to be drawn back to that. Christians, we need to find satisfaction in Christ and in Christ alone. God really is, you see, enough to meet all of your needs, all of your wants, all of your desires. We really can find full fulfillment and comfort and joy in Him. The other is a lie. The other is a lie. It is only a facade of what can be. Those other things do not bring about satisfaction that is lasting. But as with all things, this, this is a choice we must make. This, you see, is what Jesus was pointing at when He said, take up your cross daily and follow Me. It is our choice to follow God in this. To pursue God in the things of God. Or not. To develop our relationship with God. Or to love our world. That's our choice every day, every moment. Every decision, every emotion, every action. And then, here's the interesting thing, interesting thing then. And then, the entire world, everybody around you, will be able to see the choice you made. We can't hide it. We can't pretend it. It's re re really there. Everybody knows whether we've chosen to succumb to the pressure of the world, to live a, 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 a yielded faith, or we've chosen to live an unyielding if we fail to carve out a satisfying life in Christ, we are more likely to succumb to the pressure. 
If we aren't satisfied with Christ, all that other stuff looks pretty good. And this is where then believers begin to drift from the faith. Oh sure, they may still go to church if they have the time. Nothing better on the schedule. As the offering plate comes by, if they got a couple bucks in their wallet, they'll drop them in there. Do God a favor, you know. They may even serve an hour or two here and there. Just to make sure they feel good about it. They go through the motions, calling themselves Christians. But their life is a far far cry from God's design. For the Christian who has drifted over into the ho-hum attitude in their relationship with Christ, they are in reality asleep at the wheel of life and oblivious to the fact that they have drifted from their lane into oncoming traffic and disaster looms ahead if they continue in their path. If you call yourself a Christian, I have this to say this morning. Wake up to your faith. Live an unyielded faith. Return to an unyielding faith. Or maybe for some who are here this morning, maybe it would be for the first time, turn to an unyielding faith. Recognizing that God really does love you more than you've ever thought. But you see, we have to understand this reality that this is our choice. Nobody else makes this choice for us. Our world is pressuring us to conform. It is pressuring us back to its way, away from God's original intent. It is pressuring believers not to be zealous for God, not to live a passionate faith. And we're told as believers many different ways, we're told not to be zealous for God. We're told to cool our passions for God. We're told, we're told many things to coerce us away from this unyielding faith. Don't wear your faith on your sleeve. Today's pop word that's out there, phrase, you might offend somebody. We're told you don't really want to push that too far and, and be a zealot. You want to keep your conversation about Christianity outside of civilized conversation. Don't be too religious around other people. Keep that religion stuff to yourself. Behave, behave more normal like everybody else. You know, join in those conversations and, and tell those off-color jokes and, and post those things on, on social media that really should not be there. Join in those conversations tearing people down. Be more like the world. Don't, don't be so stringent in your faith. Enjoy those feelings that you have. Take the longer look at the person who's not your spouse. In other words, follow those cravings you have. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Every single one. You know, God created us for so much better than that. God created us for so much better than that. Our life in Christ is supposed to be full and rich and vibrant. It is supposed to be lived in vibrant living color. Not just sort of there. Our life is supposed to be full of... Well, our life is supposed to be full of life. 
not this half-life that we go through. All that other stuff is a poor imitation, and you won't find lasting satisfaction there. If your life in Christ, if you call yourself a Christian, and it is not vibrant, it is not lived in full color, let me just say, something is wrong in your relationship with Christ. It's not supposed to be that way. You may have yielded your faith instead of living an unyielding faith. Something's wrong. Possible, maybe you've been coerced away from what it is you're supposed to be at. Pressured to conform to the world possible one or more of those three lures were dangled in front of you and you bit and now you find yourself living less than you might have bought the lie that the fruit was good you might have believed that god can't be trusted you might have thought that he's keeping the good stuff from you so you went after what wasn't good for you and now you're following the pattern of this world you're still a christian you're just missing out on the greater parts of what life is about as a Christ, as a Christ follower. The world today really isn't much different than it was in New Testament times. Oh, sure, they didn't have cell phones and microwaves and microwave dinners and what have you, but they had their own problems. I mean, the people were just like you and I. When they woke up in the morning, they still had to put their pants on one leg at a time. They still had to work for a living. They still drank that cup of coffee as they ran out the door to work. Well, maybe not quite that one, but you get the idea. You understand here. Their lives were just like ours. They battled the same pressure that you and I do. Pressure to conform to a lesser way of living. Pressure to conform to something that inner, inwardly we know it is broken. It's not supposed to be that way. They were just like us. The book of James, which is where we are starting today. I know, we started with uh, 1 John. I know. You have to understand something. James, he wrote that letter to Christians, to believers, just like us. They lived their lives. They went through everything, just like us. But every single day, they too were bombarded with a pressure to become like the world around them. They were pressured by the world to not be so different. They were pressured by the world to believe and feel and do as everybody else does because that's the right way. Theirs is wrong. They're pressured to conform to the pattern of this world in the same three ways that you and I are. James's readers, they were faced just like you and I with a better option. Choose to be transformed by God. We were saved for something that better. We were saved for better things. Salvation is an eternity thing. That is true. But we must not forget that salvation has a now component to it. We are not locked into that other way of life. We have been freed to live the way God created us to live through the power of God at work inside you if you are a Christ follower. James wrote to woke up, wake up his readers from the slumber that they were in danger of falling into. They were in danger of falling asleep to the bigger picture of life in Christ. They were in danger of falling asleep and taking the lazy approach to faith. They were in danger of not being awake to the reality of God's activity in, through, and around them. 
And this is our choice today. Give in to the coercive world that we live in or live an unyielding faith. An unyielding faith refuses to succumb to the pressure to be less than God created us to be. It's important enough for me to say again. A yielding faith refuses to succumb to the pressure to be less than God created us to be. So today we have embarked on a journey of discovery. We're going to explore God's design for an unyielding faith to discover what does an unyielding faith look like. We're going to look at the letter of James in the New Testament to discover what faith is supposed to look like. Now this is not talking about saving faith. It is not that you will, if you do the things that James talks about, you will be saved. Rather, James paints a picture for us to see today as well an unyielding faith, saving faith, looks like this. We're going to expand on it over the next three months. We're going to look through here to discover how better to live. James was aware of the coercion that the world pushed on believers probably aware of a personal experience. The, compre- the pressure to conform back to the old way of life. And for them, or suffer the consequences. For them, they, may, they had consequences such as maybe people would reject them because of their faith in Christ. Sometimes, if they refused to, if they, if they, if they chose, I should say, to live an unyielding faith, well, then they may lose all their possessions. And even in some cases, if they chose to live an unyielding faith, some of them lost their lives. Now in America, we generally don't have those last two things, but we do have the first one, is that if we live an unyielding faith, people may not like us. We may be viewed as strange because our faith is vibrant and alive, full of joy and love and hope, pursuing God in everything. James wrote his letter to a bunch of believers who were scattered because of intense persecution. He wrote it to encourage them to live an unyielding faith. It wasn't about condemnation. It was about encouragement. No matter what level of coercion was to come their way, remain faithful. No matter the pressure they felt, stay alert. No matter what happened, stay awake, passionately following Christ. So as I said, the next three months, we're going to learn how to have an unyielding faith. So today, today I I challenge you, choose this moment right now to live an unyielding faith. If you are a Christ follower, Choose today not to give in to the pressure of the world to become like it. The pressure from within to go back to the old way. But instead, choose to live an unyielding faith in God. Now if you're here today and you've never made that choice to follow God, I offer the same challenge. Choose today to live an unyielding faith in Christ. He's worth it. He's worth it. God's love is worth it. Father God, 
Father, we are humbled as we consider Your amazing grace and love. And while I talk about this continuously, there is no way to adequately express the love that You have shown to us. There's no way for us to express 